0: Let's uh, turn to Luke 5. We'll turn to Luke 5. This is God's holy and infallible Word. It is the Word of truth. It is the Word of life. And it is the most exalted thing that has ever been written. This is God's Word. And we'll stand to give honor to the Word of the Lord, if you're able. Let's stand as we read together Luke 5, starting at verse 33 through 39, hear the word of the Lord, and they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer, offer prayers, the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink, and Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for the new, for he says, the old is good enough. Let's pray. Our blessed Lord, help us to understand, as we receive your word that you would help us to cast out the old and receive the new, those new and wonderful blessed things that have been revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus our Lord. For we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Tradition can be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, if. Tradition does not have biblical support, it should be cast out. But if you have tradition that is based upon biblical principles, it should be, let's just say, furthered and passed down. One thing I do love as a tradition of Presbyterian churches, especially Reformed Presbyterian churches, is congregational singing. Uh, God commands each and every one of us to give God the praise. Sing praises unto the Lord. Sing praises. That's not just for the choir, that's for the congregation. So I think, you know, that's a, having a congregational singing that's vigorous would, is something that we should uh, pass down as a tradition. When I was in the Catholic Church in um, St. Landry Parish in Grand Prairie, Louisiana, uh, the only person who ever sung in the church was the priest. No one else sung in the church. That, that's a, that was a bad tradition in South Louisiana. As we look this morning, there's tradition here, though, that the men, uh, the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees had, that was not good, uh, because it was an excess of what God's Word taught. In fact, Jesus will say in this text that such tradition that does not conform to the Scriptures needs to be cast out. So ultimately, Jesus came, as we find out, he came to die And to suffer for our sins as the perfect sacrifice of God. But he came for more than that. He came to teach. He came to teach very important truths. He he came to give correctives concerning the law of God. And we find that in the Sermon on the Mount. But in today's text, he came to correct false traditions. And we'll see that uh, as we read along. So immediately after answering the critique of the Pharisees and the scribe, their scribes, when they said, well, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Of course, Jesus said he was the great physician who came not to, to tend to the well, but those who were sick and lost. But here they came and gave him another critique immediately following. And we'll look at that, and it's regarding this religious practice of Fasting. As we focus on today's text, the main point that I want you to get is that you need to receive the newness of the Gospel instead of man-made tradition. Each of you are called to receive the newness of the Gospel rather than man-made tradition. We'll look at this sermon in two parts. Uh, First, Christ's teaching on fasting, and a, a little bit of a scriptural overview on fasting, and also Christ's parable about newness. So let's look at this first main point, Christ's teaching on fasting. Look at verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. Now, if you go through the Old Testament and you say, Well, where is there a commandment that says, Thou shalt fast? and how often thou shalt fast. You don't find those particular words in Scripture. The closest thing that some scholars would say is that uh, I've seen at least two different sources that cite Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, not Deuteronomy, Leviticus 29. Leviticus 29 gives us language, it talks about on that Day of Atonement of humbling oneself. And in humbling oneself, they say, well, that's where we get this practice that they would fast every time for the Day of Atonement. And I want us to look at a passage that supports the combination of humbling oneself with fasting. Let's turn to Isaiah 58. So we're looking at Isaiah 58 as a way of helping us to see that there's a combination of humbling oneself and fasting. Isaiah 58, starting at verse 3. Let's read verses 3 through 5 at first. This is a a hypothetical question that they're asking of God, and then God's going to answer. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife, and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Okay, so what, what's going on here? They're fasting, and they're asking God, Well, why don't you hear us? Why don't you hear our prayers? We're fasting to devote ourselves to you, O oh God. Why don't you, why don't you heed us? Well, I don't know if you've ever fasted and to the point where, you, you, you basically, you don't eat anything from breakfast, lunch, and then by the time dinner comes along, you're getting kind of agitated. Well, you can imagine... Maybe the example here is that these people are getting agitated and they're, they're commanding their workers in a harsh fashion. They're being mean and they're striking others. They're getting in fights and contentions. I said, oh, well, I'm fasting. Well, why are you hitting people? You know? Uh, so anyway, if you do fast, it's not going to work for you unless you pray to God for His grace and His fruit of the Spirit, humility, patience, and another uh, paraphrase of patience or translation of the word for patience is long-suffering. You're not going to do well fasting unless you're asking for God's supernatural help and Holy Spirit to help you. Otherwise, you're going to be more like these guys, tending you want to strike or hit somebody or get harshly drive your workers. Let's read on, uh, verse 5. This is the fast that he wants us to hold to. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? It is for bowing one's head like a reed, and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed. Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the band's of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. We'll stop there. So, God is saying, rather than doing some religious observance with a hard heart and with meanness and striking and strife and, and all kind of other nastiness, what God desires for you is mercy and love and service of, of, to those who are in need. Another place in Scripture where the prophet uh, Zechariah it gives a word of God against those who were basically claiming to fast twice a year for 70 years. They did that on the 5th and 7th month. And according to Zechariah 7.5, he asked this question. When you fasted and mourned, and you did so two months out of the year, when you fasted and mourned, did you do it for me? So the question was, did you fast for me? Or did you fast for yourselves, or to exalt yourselves? What was going on here was that the Pharisees were following a tradition, not, to, not like in Zechariah's day where they wanted to fast twice a year. Uh, Jesus cited a parable. Now, I don't know if this was an exaggeration or not, but Jesus cited a parable of a Pharisee who was in, in the temple with the publican, and he was having pride in himself, that he fasted, not twice a month, but twice per week. Jesus also rebuked those in Matthew 6 who would go around making their faces ill-kept. Maybe they didn't shave. Maybe they left their hair a little disheveled. And deep down what they really wanted was they wanted other people to look at them and to notice them that they were doing something devoted to God, that they were fasting. And look, look how religious and holy that guy is. Jesus warned that they would have their reward in full. And he instructed, if you fast, do so in secret, and God will reward you in secret. Now, as much as John the Baptist was a godly man, He was also very much an ascetic. He was a person who believed in neglecting the body, otherwise he wouldn't have lived in the wilderness eating locusts and honey. And he thought it was holy to fast often, and maybe he might have even told his disciples, the disciples of John, to fast often. But again, even if it came from John the Baptist, that was a man-made tradition and not what God's Word required. Look at what Jesus answered about fasting, verses 34 through 35 of today's text. You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. So here Jesus is saying that there still is a place for fasting. Um, fasting is a, an appropriate thing to do when people are suffering. They're suffering loss, or maybe they're asking for God's help through a great trial. As Jesus said, I believe that many of his disciples did fast when he was taken away and crucified. And they were wondering whether or not they were going to be next. I'm sure they were fasting and asking God for mercy. So what Jesus is saying is that rather than in a, on a strict schedule, prescribed so many times a year or so many times a month, we do fasting according to, to dire needs. Matthew 17, there is a case of fasting because of a, a, a particular individual, a man's son, who was demon-possessed. And he says that such a one would not be cast out except by prayer and fasting. Matthew 17, 21. Jesus Christ commended the repentance of Nineveh. He commended them that they would stand in the judgment. And what was included in their repentance? Fasting and prayer and extreme repentance in sackcloth and ashes. But in their fasting, they cried out to God for mercy. And they weren't doing so to be exalted by men key thing is that all fasting should be done with a heart of devotion unto God, with, with a sincere heart. And then Jesus moves on and gives an illustration. Look at uh, in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Luke 5 as we go on, he's going to give us parables about newness. Look at verses 36 through 38. And he was also telling them a Parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it in an an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Patching clothes is not something that I've seen a whole lot since the 1990s. Um, If you grew up in the 80s, it was probably more common. I I have had a a few pair of pants that were patched up and especially the jeans, you'd buy these little patches, and you had to you had to put it on the inside and iron it out with a hot iron, and that was a, the kind of thing you did. But now we've got this style where everyone wants jeans with holes in them, so that's kind of gone out by the wayside. And I haven't—it's been forever since I've seen a pair of patched-up khakis. Um, but the process that Jesus was talking about here was that they would have to take a piece of cloth and they wouldn't iron it on because they didn't use hot irons back then. They would have to sew it that to fill up a hole. And then when they sew that hole up, you, instead of having a clothes with holes in it, you had a little patch there. Well, he, he gives something that's common knowledge. He's saying that if you took a new piece of cloth and you tried to patch up an old piece of cloth, when you washed it and dry it, that little patch would shrink and it would tear. He's saying you can't match up the new patch with old clothes. I believe what he's saying here is that the old garment represents the tradition of men like that of the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus wasn't able or willing to try to get the newness of the gospel to patch up that old raggedy tradition. In other words, those old garments and that old tradition had to go. Um, I'm thinking of another illustration that's kind of maybe similar. You have an old boat it's all rusted in many spots, and you take new metal and try to weld it onto old rusty boat. How's that going to work for you? It's just going to sink, isn't it? You know, sometimes it's it's just not worth keeping. You have to cast it out, and I believe that's what Jesus is saying here. He gives another parable. Um, well, first of all, uh, regarding tradition. He, uh, he, in Mark 7, Jesus rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees, saying that they were invalidating the Word of God by their tradition, which they handed down. My grandpa, the Pharisee, did it. And my great-grandpa, the Pharisee, did it. So therefore, I'm doing it, because that's what I was taught. You fast once a month or twice a month. Or maybe some even said twice a week. Jesus goes and gives another parable, saying that you cannot mix the old with the new, verse 37 and 38. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, wineskins were made out of leather, kind of wonder how that would taste your, your, uh, your wine and with a little leather flavor to it. But you'd make, this, you'd make these skins out of leather, and I'm sure maybe they cured it to the point where it didn't give off that much flavor. And they would sew two pieces and make like a pouch. It was kind of shaped like a kidney and had a little spout on it. And I've seen some, some examples of the medieval um, wine skins that were made, then they, ha- they would use like a wooden plug to fit in the top i guess you could use cork as well but you could just stick a piece of wood and cork it up and with age as, as anyone knows with old shoes with age especially with use leather can dry out over time and it gets starts to crack and then you can only use it for so long and he was telling I me mean, you wouldn't just take that old raggedy wine skin and try to put new wine in it especially when it's still in the process of fermenting it's still getting, giving off co2 as it's making that ongoing fermentation, and you could bust it. I've had that uh, kind of thing happen before with soda in bottles and other things in bottles. Um, They can burst if you have too much carbonation. But this old wrong tradition of the scribes and Pharisees was like that worn-out, pretty much good-for-nothing wine skin. What good is it any longer? Get new wineskins for new wine. When Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. He called it the new covenant. There was newness to the gospel that we find in the New Testament He wasn't actually changing up what we would call the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace extends all the way through the Old Testament even until throughout the New Testament as well. He was giving what we call a different administration of the covenant of grace. And what Jesus did was that he came to fulfill the perfect sacrifice for sin. As the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world he was the fulfillment of that long promised grace he was the final prophet and ultimate sacrifice for sin as we studied before in hebrew in hebrews hebrews 10 jesus christ unlike the earthly jewish priests of old which never could take away sin jesus came And once for all offered himself a sacrifice for sin and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus had that newness. And that's what that book of Hebrews is about. Out with the old and in with the new. Hebrews 8, 6 says, He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises a better sacrifice, a better high priest, a better covenant, a better promise, a better assurance. Because our assurance is not based upon our obedience or whether we fast twice a week or fa- twice a month this month. Our acceptance before God is what is based upon what Jesus has done. And if you have faith in Christ you can be assured that you are forgiven of your sins and that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law for you. And and that is a radical thing that Jesus did away with the earthly priesthood. There was no longer a need for an earthly priesthood because he was the final sacrifice and he was the final great high priest. Now. I will tell you, I was tripped up for quite a while um, in, in Luke 5. I've always wondered about this. In Luke 5, it says, it seems that to be a verse that, that contradicts what we have just studied earlier. But look at it in verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. I think what Jesus is saying here is that he's citing a stumbling block why many of the Jews resisted him and the gospel. They said, "Well, we don't want what Jesus has to offer. We like the old. You know, we like that old wine. Why do we want the new? Because we like what we are used to." And and many of us can relate to that. We don't want change. But sometimes God, especially in the coming of Christ, enacted great change, didn't he? Hendrickson, Dr. Hendrickson wrote this. No one wants new wine. By nature, no one does. It takes grace to create within man's heart the desire for the new life in Christ. In other words, you must be born again. Unless God has given you that newness of grace and a new heart, a regenerate heart, you will not want the newness of the gospel. You might rather the oldness of legalism, that old sin of Adam and Eve to cover yourself so that you could hide from God by some wretched personal obedience rather than the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Again, in today's text, Jesus wants you to receive the newness of the gospel instead of man-made religion. Man-made religion and man-made tradition will not profit you, but ask God that every tradition that you hold to is based upon the word of God. In today's text, we learned that Christ taught on fasting, Fasting was not something that was commanded um, more than once a year. And even the command in Leviticus was not very clear, was it? Definitely was not commanded twice a month, twice a year, or twice a week. The need for fasting is based upon the necessity. When we are going through trials as a church or as the OPC recommends, when, when you have a new minister going to be ordained they would recommend a day of fasting prior when the OPC noticed that we were going through a pandemic there was a day of fasting that was recommended dire situations are reasons good reasons for fasting but it's not to be done in a legalistic fashion but again it's to be done with a sincerity of heart rather than for man to watch you and to exalt you Christ's parable of newness talked about new garments and new wine. We do need to reject the old. And we need every bit of practice and tradition to conform with Holy Scripture. We have to have the newness of the gospel. And you might want a taste for what is old. But if God convicts you to, to do something that is rather different, You must go with what God's Word says and not what man says. Let's pray together. Our glorious Lord, we thank You for this, Your Holy Word. We thank You that You have brought the newness of the Gospel through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that through Him, the final, perfect sacrifice, the final, perfect High Priest, the final and one mediator between you and us, O Father, that you have given us your blessed Son and that we might receive that blessed and holy gospel. Help us, we pray, to cast out those traditions that are not pleasing in your sight and help us to live not for ourselves, not for others, but for you, O Father, and to exalt your glorious Son For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For a hymn of dedication we'll stand and sing 459. 459, my hope is built on nothing less.